In today's video, we have an evidence-based guide to radicular low back pain and our friend, the disc herniation. Let's do it. Before we really get going, I have an absolutely free cheat sheet for you. So it is an evidence-based guide to radicular low back pain. It's a PDF. It's got a couple pages in it, and it goes over all of the key points of this lesson today. So go ahead and download it. I'll put a link in the show notes in the description and follow along. This is also very useful. If three months from now, you have a patient that walks through the door with a radicular low back pain, you're like, ah, oh, man, what the heck did Dan say about X, Y, and Z? Just pull out the cheat sheet. You'll get it, review it, and then you're going to ace your uh, examination with your patient. So when I was in physical therapy school, one of the things I was taught is that if a patient has severe myotomal weakness, then they should be referred back to the doctor when they have radicular low back pain, right? And the first thought I had was like, what the heck is severe weakness? How do I know if someone has, let's say, mild versus moderate versus severe weakness? And when do I have to refer back to the doctor? So I have a few studies that are going to help to illuminate um, an answer to this question. But first, I want to go over manual muscle testing so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you've been to physical therapy school, you know what I'm saying. You might need a bit of a refresher like I kind of did, right? It's been a while since I went over manual muscle testing. But we do have some pretty good guidance in terms of what is mild versus moderate versus severe. But we have to be able to grade people's weakness, right? So manual muscle testing is usually done on a zero to five scale. So a zero is no muscle activation whatsoever. If you tell a patient to dorsiflex and you can't feel a tib anterior doing anything and there's no movement, that'd be a zero. A one is trace muscle activation, like a twitch, without achieving full range of motion. So again, you ask your patient, hey, dorsiflex for me, and just a little bit of muscle firing, you can feel a tib anterior doing something, but you're not getting through a full range of motion. A two is muscle activation with gravity eliminated position. So basically, if you have your patient lay on your side and you have no friction on the table, so maybe a pillowcase or something underneath their foot, ask them to dorsiflex without going against gravity at a two rating, they'll have full range of motion. But as soon as you expose them to some gravity and have them sit up and dorsiflex, they can't get through that full range. A score of three would basically be full range of motion against gravity. So think about patients seated on the end of a table, leg hanging off the edge, ask them to dorsiflex through a full range of motion. Looks like they can against gravity. As soon as you give them some resistance, they can't. That would be grade of three. A four is going to be full range of motion with a little bit of resistance, but not quite as strong as the opposite side. So if the patient kind of suspects a bit of a weakness and you test from side to side and it's not weak, but it doesn't have the same strength as the other side and you can move through a full range of motion with a little bit of resistance, chances are you got a four, right? And a five is just basically full range of motion, full strength, okay? So Kogel et al. in 2021 tried to answer the question, do you need emergency surgery if you have myotomal weakness? And does the amount of weakness dictate whether or not you need surgery? So if you have a severe weakness, do you need surgery? But if you have a mild weakness, maybe we don't need surgery, right? So here's what this uh, study did. So they basically took patients with emergency surgery after lumbar disc herniation with radiculopathy, right? And they took basically everybody, so anyone that had a mild weakness to a severe, and the way they classified severe versus mild versus moderate was that a severe weakness was less than three out of five, right? So basically, we can't go through a full range of motion against gravity, and basically anything that's that or lower would be severe. Mild weakness was a three out of five. So these folks were able to go through a full range of motion against gravity, but nothing else. 
And mild weakness was anything where you can get some resistance here through full range of motion, right? And what they found is that the severe patients and the moderate patients at the one year follow-up had a better outcome than folks that didn't have a surgery, right? So on average, they regained more muscle strength. When it came to the mild weakness, they had the same outcome long-term. So if they have a severe, if your patients have a severe or moderate weakness based on the study, then long-term, they're probably going to have a better outcome in their myotomal strength if they have emergency surgery. Now, keep in mind that this surgery was within 72 hours of the initial injury. Oftentimes, our patients, when we see them, they're beyond that 72-hour mark. So if you have a patient that's early on with severe moderate weakness, based on this study, they'll probably benefit at the year mark by sending them emergently to surgery. It's just that we don't know if that's too late or not, right? So the results of this study said that patients with moderate and severe paresis benefit from treatment within 72 hours, the treatment being surgery, as they were shown to have a significantly higher complete recovery rate at the one-year follow-up. And the other piece is that they had a much better recovery rate of their myotomal strength compared to the control group that didn't get any surgery. In conclusion, they stated that immediate surgery should be offered to patients with moderate and severe motor deficits to increase the likelihood of neurologic recovery. This perspective data may have an impact on emergency triage in these patients. Like I said, as physical therapists, we, we generally don't see these folks in the first three days, right? So basically when they get to us, it may already be too late. We're not really sure about this, but we do have one study that may help to illuminate this for us. So Peter et al. in 2019 tried to answer this question. So essentially they're looking at people that had radicular low back pain and myotomal weakness, and they either gave them surgery in the first 48 hours or surgery after 48 hours. And they wanted to look at the shorter and longer term result of doing surgery either immediately, first 48 hours, or later. And the results showed that group one, so basically the folks that had surgery in the first 48 hours, showed significantly faster recovery of moderate to severe paresis at discharge and six weeks to three month follow up whereas there were no significant differences in the recovery for mild paresis. And what this study suggests is that if you have a patient with a mild issue, then you can probably delay surgery, right? We'll talk about how long a little bit later, but we can probably go ahead and say, let's see if this recovers and give it some time. Whereas if you have a moderate to severe issue, you may want to consider that emergency surgery right away, just because we know that we're going to have a better long-term outcome at the year mark, as opposed to waiting or no surgery at all. Peter et al. in 2019 also compared early subscription to the fitness pain-free channel versus delayed subscription to the fitness pain-free channel. And what they found is that the early subscription group had a 400% increase in their intelligence. So obviously highly recommend like and subscribe if you're getting value from this. So how do we best treat lumbar radicular low back pain with and without radiculopathy? Well, a lot of this information is taken from the National Clinical Guidelines for Non-Surgical Treatment of Patients with Recent Onset Low Back Pain or Lumbar Radiculopathy. So the first thing they recommend is going to be some information about prognosis. We spoke about this earlier, but a lot of folks are going to get better very quickly without doing much of anything, and it's probably good to stay active while you're doing this. Like we said before, movement is good for nerves. Let's tell people to keep moving and just let them know it usually resolves on its own.
The other piece that we need to do is to warn people about medical red flags, right? So all the questions I went over previously, so worsening symptoms, having some sort of night pain that doesn't resolve with any change in position, all that stuff should be educated to your patient just to make sure if they are experiencing those symptoms, to go back to the doctor, there could be something more severe going on. Now, if needed, we can provide some more specific patient education, supervised exercises, as well as some manual therapies. Now, the reason why this is if needed is because a lot of folks are going to get better right away without much of anything. So largely, tell folks it's going to be okay. Let them know about the prognosis. Make sure they don't have medical red flags. And if things are not rapidly resolving, we can now get some more specific education, some exercise, manual therapy, physical therapy, so on and so forth. Another way to word this would be should do treatments versus could do treatments. And what that means is that the patient comes in ridiculous low back pain, we should be educating them and we should be pushing physical activity, right? And if they're not getting better, we can give them some more specific exercise or physical therapy. So what should we be doing from a physical therapy standpoint in our patients with ridiculous low back pain? So this information comes from our clinical practice guidelines from the American Physical Therapy Association, published in JOSPT, revised in 2021. Now, before we go on to discuss this research, I want to describe low back pain with leg pain. So essentially, they give treatment guidelines for folks that have low back pain with or without leg pain. So folks that have leg pain doesn't necessarily mean you have ridiculous low back pain. So I think all of these treatments should be taken with a grain of salt just because we're not looking at specifically ridiculous low back pain. Are there some folks with ridiculous low back pain in these studies? Sure. It's just that they're not all looking at ridiculous low back pain, right? So they define low back pain with leg pain as studies that specifically recruited patients with low back pain, buttock pain, and or symptoms extending down the leg above or below the knee were grouped as low back pain with leg pain, i.e. this was clearly indicated in the eligibility criteria. So largely they're just looking at studies where that's how they defined low back pain with leg pain which we know is not the same as ridiculous low back pain. So take these with a grain of salt. If you guys like what you're learning about so far, then the next logical step is to sign up for the fitness pain-free mini course. I've made an absolutely free mini course and we go over four vital lessons for coaches and clinicians. The first lesson goes over how traditional schooling has failed us. Now I'm actually a really big fan of education and I think that physical therapy school actually prepared me pretty well to work with the average person. However, I really didn't learn how to work with the population that I want, which is people in the strength and fitness world. So I'm talking about powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic weightlifting, sport of fitness, and really people that just love working hard in the gym. And really my goal with the mini course is to help you understand how you work with this population to get them out of pain and keep them training. The next lesson is seven reasons why people get hurt in the gym. So it's vitally important they understand the injury mechanisms or why people get hurt in the gym. If we don't understand why folks are getting hurt in the gym, it's going to be very hard to rehabilitate those folks because let's say we do get them better, they go right back in the gym and get hurt in the same exact way they hurt before. The other piece is if we want to keep these folks safe for the long haul, we have to understand the main reason why these folks get hurt in the first place so we can keep them in the gym training as safe as possible and minimize that risk of future injury. Next, we go over four simple steps for getting your clients out of pain. Now, Rehab can be very complicated. There's a lot of systems out there that make it very challenging to figure out how to work with your patients. 
However, it really doesn't have to be that complicated. So I go over four easy steps you can follow to get your patients out of pain and back in the gym where they belong. Lesson number four is how to build the career of your dreams and earn the respect of your community. Let's face it. The reason why you take these educational courses is obviously so you can learn a little bit more, but really the deep seat of reason is because you want to have the respect of your community. You want your clients to come in, work with you and say, wow, Joe was great. He did a phenomenal job with me tell their friends and their friends come to see you. And after a while, you're very valued and respected within your community. So I'm going to teach you how to do that. Second piece is that if you know these skills, it doesn't always mean you have a ton of patients going through the door so you can work with the population you want to work with, right? So you may be the absolute best coach in the world, but no one wants to come and see you because they don't know who you are and they don't know how good you actually are. So we'll teach you how to get the patients through the door that you want to work with. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the fitness pain-free certification. This is the largest and most comprehensive educational course that I offer, but more on this later. So I'll leave a link in the description, in the show notes. Again, it's 100% free, really easy to download. Go ahead and do that right now. And now back to your learning. So first we'll talk about acute low back pain. So let's say someone has a very recent onset of low back pain with leg pain. Again, may or may not be ridiculous in nature. What are the best treatments for these folks? Well, JOSPT gave a grading of B that physical therapists may use exercise training interventions, including trunk muscle strengthening and endurance and specific trunk muscle activation to reduce pain and disability for patients with acute low back pain with leg pain. This is actually a pretty big gap in knowledge, right? I'm just going to read it to you. More research is needed to examine exercise training interventions for patients with acute low back pain with and without leg pain. There's a need for level one randomized controlled trials comparing exercise training interventions against usual care or other interventions to clarify whether exercise training interventions provide benefit beyond the favorable natural history of acute low back pain. So basically, we don't know if exercise is always better than doing nothing. And for a lot of these studies, and we'll look at them in a minute, they didn't have a good control group. And that's a problem because we're trying to see what type of exercise is best we're actually not looking to see if nothing is as good as the exercise. Okay. And that's a problem. There's also a need for direct comparisons of different exercise training interventions for patients with acute low back pain with leg pain. We'll discuss this more a little bit later, but it's not like we have great studies to compare, let's say nerve glides versus stability exercises versus McKenzie, right? Wish we had this research. We tend not to have very much of that. Efforts should be made to ensure that individuals recruited into exercise randomized control trials match demographic and clinical characteristics of those seeking care for low back pain. So basically, the folks that are coming in the door to seek care for you and me are those the same types of people that are actually in the research studies, okay? We need to make sure that the populations that we're studying are the same populations we're actually treating because we don't know whether or not those results are going to apply directly to our patients if the patients are very different in the studies, right? So the first study that we're going to look at, the clinical practice guidelines, is going to be from Huber et al. And they had an experimental group that was looking at muscle strengthening and endurance exercise. Basically, they are doing supine isometric back extensions and abdominal exercises, kind of core strengthening generally. The control group was just given advice to reduce activity and loading of the spine. So basically you have an exercise group that was given strengthening versus control that just says, Hey, take it easy. Don't load the spine too much. Right. There were 52 patients with acute back pain with leg pain 
Again, we don't know if these patients all had radicular low back pain or not. And the experimental group had a greater reduction of pain intensity after 20 days, which is around a two point difference, 1.7 on the numeric pain rating scale. So it looks like if we give these patients some form of some form of core strengthening routine, that's going to decrease their pain more so than saying, Hey, take it easy. Don't loan the spine too much. Right. And that's good. Seems like exercise is beneficial for these folks. Ye et al compared two different exercise training interventions. And they're looking at 63 young males between the age of 20 and 29. So just keep in mind, most folks with ridiculous low back pain tend to be older, right? Is this the best treatment for older folks too? Don't know. They were diagnosed with lumbar disc herniation. And the two groups were general exercise or specific trunk muscle activation exercises. So kind of motor control, core stability exercises versus general exercise, go out there and do some walking, right? The study was three months in length, excuse me, length. Outcomes were assessed after the three month period in one year. And what they found is that there was no difference at the three month assessment, but at the one year mark, the specific, specific trunk muscle activation had a greater improvement in back pain and disability from the Oswestry Disability Index, right? And that's fairly interesting because, you know, should patients with radicular low back pain actually get physical therapy or should they just be given the advice to go exercise, right? And this study kind of showed if we give them specific targeted exercise, seems like at least at the year mark, they have a little bit better outcome, right? Because the thing is, we're trying to save healthcare dollars. My counter argument would be how many folks that are given the advice to exercise that are normally sedentary will actually exercise when they're told that they should, right? Probably very little. If they go to a physical therapist, at least they kind of make sure they get the exercises done. So now that you have some evidence-based information about radicular low back pain, you still need to know how to treat these folks. Well, I have a case study for you where I break down a patient with radicular low back pain, show the exact treatments that I use and show exactly how we got back to weight training over the course of time. I'm going to leave a link up here. You should go ahead and click on that and continue with the learning. Lastly, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that thumbs up button. If you leave a comment, it helps the algorithm. I'd also love to know your thoughts on this presentation today. Please subscribe to the channel. It helps me out tremendously. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, please consider leaving me a positive review. Again, it helps tremendously. If you want to see more content like this in the future, we got to make sure we grow this over the course of time, right? And lastly, if you want to support me even further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. This is going to be my premium subscription membership to Fitness Pain-Free, where all my best content updated monthly uh, lives. So head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, click on Fitness Pain-Free Insiders online library, just $1 for a week trial. Also leave a link in the show notes in the description. All right, go ahead and check it out. And lastly, I have all of my references and it's a God awful amount of references. And I know you can't read any of this. So if you really want to check out the references that I use, I recommend checking out the show notes link in description and you can see all the references that I use. And if you like them and you want to comment on them, leave a comment.